You are listening to episode 81, Fertile Minds Radio, and I'm your host, Hillary Talbot Rowland. So, I mean, I think that people are very much microanalyzing from what I see in the communities. There's some bias in what I see because a lot of the people who are in the communities and posting frequently are the people who are more likely to want to be obsessing about their data. And also, I have to make sure that I am clear that when I say like obsessing about your data, I don't mean that pejoratively at all. I think that there's this horrible stigma that caring about the journey to getting pregnant makes you this like desperate weird like woman or something and I mean it's so obvious that like as something something's as important as having a baby yeah you care about it and you think about it a lot so when I I think I mean I was also very obsessive about looking at my chart if you are looking for holistic wisdom and a plan to reclaim your fertility to help you create a healthy family for generations to come you're in the right place this is fertile minds radio that excerpt that you just heard was our guest today, Lindsay Measle. We have an awesome show for you. Uh, Lindsay is actually the chief science editor at the Ava Fertility Tracker with over a decade of experience educating and writing about reproductive health. I got to geek out with her over the science behind this wearable piece of tech and its algorithm and how exactly the Ava bracelet is different from other ovulation predictors. So if you have ever wondered about using the Ava bracelet, have tracked your own basal body temperatures and are totally fed up with it and thrown those charts in the garbage or don't understand what they're telling you, or you're just starting out and you're trying to figure out when is your body actually fertile, this episode is definitely for you. So without further ado, here we go. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. I'm so happy to have you on. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Thanks. So I've read some articles of yours and you're definitely a master at breaking down the science behind wearable tech and the mysteries of the menstrual cycle and really easy to understand bites. So I know our listeners will benefit. Plus, I totally love my Ava bracelet, which is who you work for. So thank you so much again for your time because I know it's one of your most valuable assets. I'm, I'm nothing but happy to be here, so it's my pleasure. <laughs> so I have mentioned the Ava bracelet on some of my previous episodes because I actually have one and I love it. And I talk about the importance of basal body temperature tracking or BBTs to help a woman decipher her woman or her fertile window. But for those of our listeners who don't really know what the Ava is, can you explain it to them and how it came about? Yeah, definitely. So Ava is a sensor bracelet. You wear it only while you're sleeping at night and it tracks seven different physiological parameters. And these parameters are correlated with changes in your reproductive hormone levels, the changes that kind of cyclically happen throughout your menstrual cycle and that are associated with ovulation. And so by measuring these changes uh, over the course of your cycle, Ava is able to detect when your fertile window occurs in real time. And what that actually means is it, it detects on average five fertile days per cycle. And the, the, ben- the real benefit of it compared to you know, other methods of tracking your fertility is unlike the basal body temperature method, which you mentioned, it's, it's able to tell you as your fertile days are happening that they're happening. And so it's not, um, it's not looking at, uh, okay, ovulation occurred retrospectively. That means your fertile days were, you know, these, these days just preceding that. It's saying in the moment, these are signs that you're fertile right now and your body's preparing to ovulate. 
Right. Which is so important because your optimum fertility is actually, I think, I believe 24 to 36 hours prior to ovulation, right? Yeah. Some studies show even earlier than that. There's, there's two really good big studies that are looking at, um, it's like called like the daily fecundability study or something like that. And they don't find exactly the same thing, but they find like the, the two to three day period before ovulation is some, somewhere in there is the best time. And so it could even be that, you know, three days before ovulation is just as good as one day before ovulation and definitely better than the day of ovulation. Right. Which when I educate most women on that in my practice, they're shocked to, to find out that and that they're, they're only fertile five days of the month. I think that's something women of my age group were not taught. We were taught how to not get pregnant. Not that there was only five days we could get pregnant. Yeah. I mean, technically it's a a six day maximum fertile window, but the important part that I think a lot of people miss is that that's the maximum. And so your individual results may vary and depending on, you know, what, how fertile that particular cycle is or your age or your cervical mucus, you might have only two or three days out of those six day maximum, that six day maximum period where you're actually fertile. Right. The cervical mucus is a huge, um, asset in terms of trying to extend that window um, and making sure that you have a little bit of a longer time or it's a healthy environment for the sperm, you know, that the super sperm that can live in you for four days, as long as that environment is ripe, right? Yeah. (laughs) So I think most women are used to kind of reading about BBTs and cervical mucus and using that to predict their fertile window. But the the other points of data are a little bit new for most women's and and even myself, like looking at perfusion and going, well, what is that? And how does that change during the cycle? Do you think that there is one of these um, pieces of data that's the most important for predicting the fertile window? Or is it really kind of the complete picture of all of the variables that gives Ava its superpowers? That is the million dollar question. So it's, it's a mix of both. So in, in APHIS clinical studies, we've identified changes in the individual parameters that we measure um, throughout the menstrual cycle um, around for the fertile window and ovulation. So basically what that means is, you know, we see that pulse rate, breathing rate, uh, temperature, these things change in significant ways throughout your cycle um, based on what your hormones are doing. But our method is based on something called a machine learning algorithm, which combines all of these subtle changes together in a way that um, it, it, it's able to detect patterns that wouldn't be obvious to the naked eye in the same way that you can you know, look at a BBT chart and it's really obvious and clear what day you ovulated or at least what two to three window day you, period you ovulated within. And so machine learning is basically a way to it's a way for algorithms to make decisions where the reasons aren't obvious, even they wouldn't be obvious to someone on our data science team who helped build this machine learning algorithm. And so this is why machine learning is sometimes described as a black box. Um, that's just kind of how it works. It's, it's the algorithm is able to look at all of the data that you're gathering and learn to see patterns that even humans can't see. And so does that make sense that it's sort of, yes, each of these parameters is important on its own, but the, the real magic of what Ava does is bringing them all together. It does because I've had that experience in the treatment room of looking at somebody's patterning on their Ava app and going, well, that's, that's a little bit different than what I'm used to seeing with the BBT. And then lo and behold, they're pregnant the next month and it was right. <laughs> and determining. Yeah. It's, it's really surprising sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And I, I do like the algorithm because, you know, my job is at Chinese uh, medicine practitioners to look for patterns, but 
there can be this level of emotionality and bias when you're looking for patterns, right? Especially when you're dealing with something charged like fertility. And so the algorithm kind of takes that out of the equation, which is a big part of like I why I love for some of my patients to use this kind of wearable tech. Because when I find that when they're just charting cervical mucus or position or um, basal body temperatures, when they're starting off their day every morning, like that's the first thing that they're exposed to is this temperature. They're completely reading into this one piece of data and it's what they're going to think about for like the next 12 hours of their waking day, right? Numerous studies have showed what we're exposed to in that first 90 minutes is really what kind of sets the trajectory for our day. And so taking basal body temperatures, even though it yields so much information, it can make them crazy pants. Oh my God. I just have to say that that resonates with me so much when I was trying... Sometimes I would, you know, I'd be checking my my basal body temperature and my cervical mucus. And I can't believe how many times I'd be like, stick my finger up my vagina, see what kind of cervical mucus is there. And then my whole day is like crap because it's not the egg white signed. And I'm like, how did I just like find something in my body that messed up my whole day? Like, it's it's very true. Yeah. And so I, like, I will instruct my patients to, if they get the EVA to just track for three months, like we're going to do a slow cook method is what I call Uh it of like, we're just going to gather data and then we're going to see where you land. And we're going to let this tell you when you're fertile and you don't have to worry about it. Um, And I find that for some of my personality types, it's really a game changer for how much they're stressing out over their fertility. So it's a beautiful gift in that way. I'm glad you see that. I mean, I just, one of the motivations in building EVA for us was that when Women already do enough work when it comes to domestic matters, and that doesn't start only when you have kids. It starts before. We've done a lot of surveys in our communities um, of AVA users, and we find that even in the just trying to get pregnant phase, women are the ones who are Googling and worrying and thinking about this often much more than their male partners. Um, And so... I'm all for women being really involved in tracking the fertility if they want to do that. And some people find that empowering, but you shouldn't have to do that. It can feel like a full-time job for a lot of people. And so Ava should give you the possibility if you want to just have, you know, all you do is wear it at night and it tells you the information you need. Yeah. There, there's a study that actually backs up what you're saying. The the women are the ones that are tracking. And in fact, in, in three months of, um, of failed pregnancy of trying, that's when they their psyche starts to go down the negative rabbit hole of, oh my God, it's not going to work. And a, and a man is somewhere like around nine to 12 months before he starts to go, hmm, maybe something's not working right. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're having all this sex and there's no baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really big difference. <laughs> it's a huge difference, right? So it just goes to show biologically how, how different we are wired and that level of concern for our fertility. Yeah, definitely. And then now we have all this information at our disposal, which is both beautiful and really scary sometimes, right? Like I think I've died nine times on WebMD. <laughs> I know. Oh my God. T- completely. Right. And I, and I have medical training and I'm still like, oh my God, I definitely have cancer. Yep. I've thought that many, many times. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so one point that I actually wanted clarification from you on in a kind of a selfish matter is the difference between skin temperatures and like an oral BBT because most of my training was done around basal body temperatures. And I don't know if you know Kristen Carmacher of Conceivable, but... No, I don't. She It's a an herbal line, but she went back and retroactively looked at, like, I think something crazy, like 30,000 uh, BBT cycles. And what they showed was, is that in the follicular phase, if your skin, if your oral temperature was around 97.2, 
consistently. And then in the luteal phase, the second half post-ovulation was around 98.2. And you had at least um, a half degree to one and a half degree change within 72 hours of that ovulatory shift that the following cycle, your rate of miscarriage went from somewhere around 25% to 4%. So once you had that perfect cycle temperature wise, it was actually kind of this indicator of that the next month was your best option to get pregnant and carry to term, which I found really interesting. What a fascinating study. Oh my gosh. Right? Yes. <laughs> I have so many, I'm so interested and I have so many questions too, because one thing, sorry, I'm like cutting you off here, but no, 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 go ahead. I mean, taking your temperature, I mean, it, doesn't it also make an impact what time you take your temperature? Cause I would like, if I took my temperature randomly one day at like 4.30 AM, cause I happened to be awake really quickly versus if I took it at my normal time at like 6.30, it'd be so different. Um, I wonder how they handled them like that. They did have women um, write in, I think if it was more than 90 minutes of your normal waking time, there was a, a box to be checked for that. And then I believe there was also um, a box for alcohol because oh, yes. that could raise okay. your temperature as well. As it, And so those were taken out as outliers in, in the temperature. I think that that just kind of speaks to the fact that progesterone is this massively understudied topic, progesterone in the luteal phase, and how how does the rate at which progesterone rises influence your fertility of that individual cycle? And there's so many different, um, I mean, I'm sure you know so much about this as someone who does traditional Chinese medicine, but th there's so many different ovulatory charts. And you know, you might have a slow rise pattern and you might have like a rise and then a fall, or you might just have like this sharp rise and it stays high. And I think there's nobody really knows for sure, for sure. There's not like tons of information about what all of those mean, but I feel like they must mean something about your fertility. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's like a lot of what Chinese medicine does in the realm of fertility in modern day is correlating those different patterns to different Chinese medical imbalances. And some of them do obviously relate back to like corpial luteal dysfunction function and low progesterone. So for instance, like when you see that slow to rise where it's like, I call it the little engine that could, where it like takes a week to, to rise, I can almost tell immediately there's going to be, there's not enough progesterone. So there's this trouble and transformation from yin to yang. It's like that spark isn't there. And then a lot of times too, in the luteal phase, you'll see what we call the saddlebag and the temperatures where it kind of, it looks like a horse saddle, like it rises and then you'll have a drop and it drops and then it sort of comes back up right before the woman menstruates. Um, and that is some issue with the, um, progesterone, but we have to tonify yin and blood in the follicular cycle. And then oftentimes too, you'll see that drop and which some women attribute to implantation, right? Somewhere in that like eight, nine day post ovulation. But if I see more than two drops in the luteal phase, I start to get a little squirrely of like, mm, I don't know if this, this um, particular pregnancy is going to stay if she is in fact pregnant. And so is there anything that you see in the AVA patterns like that? Does the algorithm take those things into consideration? I'll, I'll tell you something interesting about that. Well, for, I mean, first to answer your question directly, no, I mean, AVA isn't going to diagnose, you know, low progesterone levels or any kind of um, more granular problem with your cycle based on what your, um, what your luteal phase temperatures or other parameters are doing. I think it would be great to go that direction in the future. And the more cycle data we have, the more, um, the more easily we'll be able to 
you know, look at those big numbers and, and say something interesting about it. But I, um, I do. So there is some interesting information about that mid luteal phase temperature dip. So, um, fertility friend has tons and tons of cycle data and they did a big analysis on that mid luteal phase dip. And what they found in their data was that, um, it is, it is common, more common in pregnancy cycles than in non-pregnancy cycles to have a really brief dip. I think it was like six to six or seven days after ovulation, most typically. Mm-hmm. And so that does seem to be somehow associated with pregnancy. Now, fertility friends didn't have any explanation for why this would be. They just said what they observed in their like massive um, repository of charts. But I think it, one thing it could be is that there is a mid-luteal phase surge in estrogen levels briefly and estrogen suppresses temperature. And so I think it could be related to that. I think it's unlikely that it's related to implantation since most of the time implantation happens nine to 10 days after ovulation. It can happen six to seven days after, but it's really rare. So you wouldn't see this common feature on lots of pregnancy charts happening so early, I think, if it was related to implantation. But yeah, those are just my deep nerding out thoughts on things that BBT does. Well, these are great. And these are questions because I know, you know, my patient population of women that are challenged with fertility are some of the smartest women I know. They're looking up everything, right? Which is why the the AVA is so great (laughs) (laughs) because they want to know sometimes what each piece of data is. So, you know, I give the instructions of like, let's use this for three months and not think about it. Let's, you know, just kind of put it on and forget about it. But do you find in because you're really inner you're really active in the the Facebook community I believe mm-hmm. that you guys have for your users do you find people like micro analyzing all these pieces of data or are they really looking at the big picture oh yes <laughs> <laughs> so I mean I think that people are very much micro analyzing from what I see in the communities there's some bias in what I see because a lot of the people who are in the communities and posting frequently are the people who are more likely to you know, want to be obsessing about their data. And also I have to make sure that I am clear that when I say like obsessing about your data, I don't mean that pejoratively at all. I think that there's this horrible stigma that caring about the journey to getting pregnant makes you this like desperate, weird like woman or something. And I mean, it's so obvious that like as something, something's as important as having a baby. Yeah. You care about it and you think about it a lot. So when I, I think, I mean, I was also very obsessive about looking at my chart, but that's a, Tangent. Sorry. Um, no, I think it's an important one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah, I just wanted to say that. But no, a lot of women do um, analyze every detail of their AVA charts in a way that I don't think it's it's how we like intend AVA to be used. But I did that with my own AVA chart, so I think it's pretty normal. But there, but we also, I think a lot of a lot of people in their luteal phase will stop looking at their data every day, if it's stressing them out, it can really impact your sleep if you're worried about like what your data, your temperature, or your AVA data is going to say in the morning. And we even have this option where you don't have to sync every day and you'll still get your data. So I think I think it's five days of data that AVA can store and you can just like sync after the five days and it'll all be there. And of course, if you sync, you also don't have to look at your data. Um, unlike with taking your temperature on a thermometer, whenever you sync, you can just like, you know, 
exit the app and not look at what it says, but you also have the option of just not even syncing at all. And then syncing a whole bunch of days at once after like four or five days. And so you don't, we, we, we give you options if you don't want to obsess. Ah, that must be on, is that on the newer models? Is that? No, that's actually been a feature for a long time. Okay. Um, that, that, that was from day one or very close to it, but it's, it's like a super user feature that not a lot of people know about. Ah, okay. I love it. I love it. Cause that is, in, would be, I think that that is something that really beneficial so that you're not worrying your two week wait away. Yeah, exactly. So when I, I, sorry, we went off on a couple of tangents, but one of the things <laughs> I wanted to know was, is there an ideal temperature in terms of pregnancy that the algorithm finds in the follicular and the luteal phase? And because the skin temperatures I find are, there seems to be less of a, um, a rise, if you will, like there's not a whole degree and a half like there is on a BBT. Right. It's more subtle. So we don't have an, an ideal temperature. That's something that we're interested in finding. Um, for a little while, we were kind of looking into whether AVA data could be used to, to predict a miscarriage in some ways. And the answer is that probably probably it can, but we're not at the, at the level right now where like it can be used to do that at all. Like there, anecdotally, people in our communities, myself, when I had a miscarriage, our data looks a little funky. Um, there's, there's like signs probably, but it's nothing that we like actually have, you know, clinical evidence for. There's no claims that we would make around that. And so, yeah, there's nothing solid I can say. Probably there's something we just don't fully understand it yet. Well, yeah, because the reason for miscarriage could be so different, right? It could be chromosomal. It could be you know, stress induced, there could be a lot of different reasons. And so you would see that show up in those different variables in different ways. I think that would take such a long time to be able to, to see that in the data, but it would be so useful as well. But then again, Western medicine doesn't offer a lot in terms of trying to help a woman if she's thinking she's about to miscarriage, right? No, definitely not. (laughs) So then you would just have this data and not be able to do anything with it unless, you know, you were seeking care from right an acupuncturist. So do you think that there's any value in, in wearing the bracelet throughout pregnancy to show you if you're overly stressed and things like heart rate variability or that you're not sleeping? I think that totally depends on your personality type. I see a lot of women in our pregnancy group who love to continue wearing it during pregnancy for exactly those reasons. Um, I, when I found out I was pregnant, took off my Ava bracelet and didn't wear it again um, for the duration of my pregnancy because I knew that I have the personality type of like, if I saw that, you know, one day my temperature or my heart rate or something went down a little bit, I knew that would freak me out, even though it shouldn't. um, Because there's, you have to look at the overall pattern, not just one day of data, but I knew I wouldn't really (laughs) be able to keep my cool. Um, So I think you kind of have to know yourself um, and know how you're going to react to having that data. It can be helpful just supporting your general health and stress levels and sleep. And I also, I kind of wish I had worn it now because it would have been so cool to just see all of that data throughout my pregnancy and breastfeeding and how it changed. Um, and so I kind of wish I had just worn it and not looked at it. Um, but no, I mean, there's real. it's really, um, it's not the same as when you're trying to get pregnant where there's you know, a really obvious, clear and practical benefit to it. Um, it's more something that you can continue to use as a bonus if, if you find it fits in your life during pregnancy. And then of course you can use it after pregnancy. Well, first of all, congratulations. You've had a little one, especially uh, it sounds like a rainbow baby from what you've alluded to. That's awesome. Yes, that's correct. Thank you. Yeah. And second of all, thank you for normalizing that for our listeners. Cause even you as a scientist, knowing you need the complete picture, still know that you would 
trying to be reading into all these pieces of data. <laughs> so I think that's important, right? Yes. <laughs> so there are so many things that I could ask you. I'm trying to kind of reel this in as to what is really beneficial for our listeners. But there, wearable tech has kind of launched into our everyday lives, I think, since the Fitbit is just kind of being normal, maybe, or even the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did wearable tech actually become like a, a normal thing in your eyes for tracking fertility? Do you think Fertility Friend was the first person to do that? I mean, it wasn't wearable. You had to input that. but That's a good question. Um, I don't know when like the very first where I think like around the time that Ava launched, there was a few other wearable thermometers that came out. As far as I know, Ava's the first wearable that said, okay, you know, let's not just be a more convenient version of the temperature method. Let's, you know, see what else we can measure. Um, I think that's why wearable technology is so exciting for women's health in particular, because we don't really understand the menstrual cycle as well as we should. And in the past, when there were studies done about, oh, how does heart rate, how does this, how does that, how do all these things change in the menstrual cycle? They had women come into a lab on, you know, day one and day 15 and day 22 of their cycles or whatever it was and just, you know, take their heart rate. And um, that that let them see that, yes, there are changes in the menstrual cycle, but it's really, really different than what happens when you, you know, put a sensor bracelet on a woman and have her wear, it's taking readings continuously throughout the night when it's not influenced by her other activities, um, and you and you just get so much more data. And so, um, you know, that's Ava's whole point of, you know, why we exist is really, um, to expand this research and scientific understanding of the women's, of women's health and wearables give us a unique way to do that. That wasn't possible before. And it, it was created by a woman, wasn't it? Am I remembering that right? Um, yes. Well, we have four co-founders and one, one of them is a woman. That's awesome. Yay, ladies. Yay, exactly. <laughs> yay, yay, yay. <laughs> yeah. So there is another piece of uh, wearable tech out there, the Sense. How does Ava differ from the Sense in terms of reliability, of figuring out how accurate it is? Because, you know, the Sense is that thermometer that you're wearing inside your vagina overnight, right? Yeah. So, so if my understanding of the obvious sense is correct, it's just, it's a like intravaginal thermometer. And so I think the main difference is that, um, you know, Ava isn't seeking to reinvent the temperature method. The temperature method, um, has, I think there's two downsides to the temperature method. One is that it's inconvenient to take your temperature manually every day. That's no fun. The other one is that it doesn't tell you when you're about to ovulate. It's not a predictive technology, um, it tells you, it confirms when ovulation occurred because it is looking at something that's correlated with progesterone. Progesterone only changes after ovulation. Um, and you know, if you want to predict ovulation, you need to look at signs that are correlated with estrogen or estradiol or a luteinizing hormone. Um, and so I think that's the most fundamental difference is that Ava is looking at physiological signs aside from temperature that change in response to estrogen before ovulation. Um, the other thing is that there's a lot of women who, um, don't mind inserting a device into their vagina and, you know, they, they want the accuracy in the measurements that come with that. Um, but I think there's also a lot of women who would find that a hassle and very invasive. And we really wanted when we were designing Ava to make it something that, that fit into your life and didn't feel invasive. Um, and kind of along with what I was saying before about how women kind of already do enough work and it can be this like full-time job to track your fertility. Um, that we thought that was, it's good that that exists, but we wanted our solution to be not asking as much of women. 
Um, and then I, I was actually just briefly looking at Obisense's website before um, we, we spoke. And I think they they say they um, identify an eight-day fertile window with 99% accuracy. I'm not sure how they define the accuracy, but since your maximum fertile window is only six days, that means that if you're getting an eight-day fertile window, at, at bare minimum, two of those eight days are not fertile. So Correct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> awesome. I'm glad you saw that too because I was like, wow, did I miss something? Has that window been extended when I was looking at it? <laughs> yeah. No, as far as I know, it hasn't been extended. <laughs> yeah. And I can see where the temperature would be super accurate, but I'm going to be honest, I'm lucky if I wash my face I know, yeah. seven days a week before bed. Like I'm getting better out as I'm older. Right? <laughs> if you if you told me I had to put something in my vagina every night before bed, I'd be like, "What?" I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that that would be on the table for sure. I know, and it also is. I mean, it seems like that would be kind of a mood killer. Like, what if you wake up and you're feeling a little frisky, and you're like, "Oh, let me take my my device out of my vagina first. It was fine, but <laughs> right because TCM says you're more fertile in the morning when you're more rested, there's more yang and then you have to do that. It's yeah, a little bit of a buzzkill. I don't know. Yeah. But one of the main things I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know how much you can go into it, is a concern that I think more and more educated women are having in terms of as we use technology to help us with these ancient things is where is all of this data going? Because I know that there have been some recent articles and some of the apps that track fertility, especially ones that are kind of used for all-encompassing health purposes that companies are giving incentives to. And then HR is able to look at your data. And if everything from you're having a high-risk pregnancy to multiple miscarriages, and, I, and there's something that just is intrinsically for me, is like, oh my God. God, that's like the ultimate big brother. <laughs> Everyone at Ava forwards those articles to each other, and we have the exact same response. And so the really nice thing is that our business model is based around selling an actual product. That's rare in tech companies. Usually the product that a company is selling is your data. Um, and so we don't. that's not our business model. We sell a product. It's, it's not cheap. Mm -hmm. It's $300. So we don't have that same incentive that free products have to monetize our users' data. Um, on top of that, we, um, you know, we have a privacy policy that you can read on our website. Um, we use our user data to improve our algorithm. All that data is, is, helps Ava get better, but it's fully anonymized. It's stored on two separate servers, and so you're, there's not any way for um, your personal identifying information to be connected with your private health information. We're also um, fully compliant with GDPR, and so we're pretty. I think we're pretty good about the privacy stuff. Yeah, you guys are one of the only um, privacy <laughs> agreements I've ever read in completion. Oh, I'm so flattered. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those things take time, right? I mean, how many times have you given your life to Apple, right, or Google? Right, I know. And I, you know, that's one that I'm like, oh, do I want this data everywhere? Um, so I appreciate that very much about. Ava, I think that that's, it's huge and it's a, an ever-growing problem that a lot of people don't think about that by the time our kids are our age, it'll, it'll be a, a huge problem. Yeah, I, I agree completely. So is there any group of women, well, first of all, how accurate does Ava uh, claim to be in terms of finding that fertile window? 
What percentage was it? We are 89% accurate at identifying these five fertile days in real time. Okay. And one thing I want to say about that is that when you're looking at accuracy, you have to think about, well, what problem is, is this trying to solve? And so if you're, if you're using the temperature method to identify ovulation after the fact, I actually don't know what percent accuracy like normal BBT tracking has, but it's probably quite high because you're lo- the problem you're trying to solve is identifying ovulation after it happens. And so this 89% accuracy that we have is for a, a much harder problem, which is identifying when your fertile window begins, basically, at the time that it begins. So sometimes I think people, that's not really clear to people. So I wanted to explain that. No, I'm glad that you did, because that is really important. And I, you know, basal body temperatures, I think are great if you are someone that is cycle is right as rain, and you're in your 20s, and it never fluctuates. And you can take that for six months and go, hey, four out of five months, I ovulated on day 14. You can probably calculate that with some pretty high accuracy. But if you are advanced maternal age or, you know, menopause runs early in your family and you're noticing some changes in your cycle, you probably, you know, as one ovary, as it often does, gets a little lazy. Sometimes (laughs) you have these alternating cycles where like one is perfect 29 days ovulating in the middle and the next is 26 days and you're ovulating early and you might miss that window. So, is Ava really good at extrapolating that data if there's something that's changing or is there a group of women it's not good for? So the whole point of Ava is to be able to give you these real-time predictions, understanding your body's not a machine, it's not going to be the same every month. And so yes, Ava is, is very good at that. That's what it's designed for. On the other hand, it's it's not for um, you know PCOS or people who have um, cycles that are outside of a 24 to 35 day range. We're working on improving our algorithm to work better for you know people who have these like more irregular cycles. That said, I think I was explaining earlier, Ava provides you with two different types of information. There's the raw data about what each of your individual physiological parameters is doing. So it's like telling you this is what your temperature was, this is what your resting pulse rate was, this is your HRV, etc. And then it's also giving you this algorithmic prediction. So if you have a highly irregular cycle outside of this range, your algorithmic prediction of your fertile window might not be correct. But we have a lot of users who still look at their their raw data and come to the, you know start to see patterns in their heart rate or their temperature um, and kind of become their own algorithm and analyze their cycles for themselves. That's not what we're tested for, not what the way that it's intended to be used. And I hope that, you know, we can improve our algorithm to work in those scenarios later, but um, people do find use out of it. That's awesome. So I actually, I, I don't think you are FDA approved for this, but I use mine for natural birth control <laughs> tracking. Right? I, I have to say, we're definitely not approved <laughs> yes. for that. So I don't want anyone listening to this to get the idea that we are, although we are working on that and um, have plans to launch a a digital contraception product. That's awesome. Yeah, because I mean, that's something that I feel like is is so needed with, you know, condoms or birth control being your only option, or if you have a lot of insight about your body, like I do, but even that gets a little scarier as I age, right? (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. Perimenopause (laughs) is a trickster. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. So um, I love that you brought up its price point because it is uh, a little hefty in terms of what some people go, oh my gosh, this bracelet, I'm never going to wear it again. But I, I do think that it is important to note that, you know, you can wear it through your pregnancy if you so choose to, if you're a personality that wants that information. Um, I do think that it's also really 
a lot of women will say, well, I don't know if my husband will let me spend $300 on that. (laughs) And my reply to that is it's an algorithm, like to share with them how this works and their brain will be all over it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah. That's how the male brain works. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So you're telling me you're taking the mystery out of it. And then um, on our show notes too, we'll have a a tab where you can click for a $20 discount as well. So that can kind of help soften it. And I want to say that there is a resale market for these. So you can hit it to reset and you can give it to your friend who's trying after you have your baby. There's also a referral program where, um, I think you get $20 for every person you refer it to. And we have a whole bunch of users who've gotten their whole bracelet for free based on that. Right. So, you know, if you want to share that with the rest of the world, then that's a way to make all your money back. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Oh, also it's, um, you can use HSA or FSA funds to purchase it. Oh, I did not know that. How amazing. That's awesome. Yes. Thank goodness that that is covered because that is, I can't think of a better thing to to use those funds for. So if you're in the U.S., uh, tax-free healthcare funds you've set aside, oftentimes you have a credit card to use that, that you would use at your doctor. So is there anything else that you want to say about the AVA and the population of women we're speaking to in terms if you could maybe give them one piece of advice if they're struggling, what that would be? Hmm. What is the last thing I want to say? I'll say two last things. Um, I was talking about this earlier, but I think the most important thing I learned on my own fertility journey was this, um, like not having this sense of shame around trying. I think there's a stigma around, I don't know. I felt a lot of pressure, especially, um, around that three month mark that you mentioned when I was starting to feel worried. I felt pressure that I had to approach trying to get pregnant. Like I wasn't trying, like it was just, you know, something that happened and I just was having fun. And, you know, if, if you, if you're starting to worry about it, then it's, you know, kind of awkward and embarrassing. Um, but I, I kind of eventually really got connected to the, like the online TTC community and I found a lot of support there. And I think there's no shame in trying to have a baby because like, what could be more important and vulnerable than that? You saying like, you want to, you're wanting a baby and you don't know when it will happen. Um, there's uncertainty. And so of course that's stressful. So just wanted to emphasize that again. And then the other thing is that, um, I think, so, so when I was trying to get pregnant, I first had to recover from hypothalamic amenorrhea. And I find that there's not enough information out there about this. Um, this is when your period goes away, you stop ovulating, usually due to some combination of exercising too much, not eating enough weight loss or stress. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a runner and I probably didn't eat enough for how much I was running. And I ended up having to uh, take a break from all intense exercise and gain weight. And um, I was very happy that I did it. And I did not, I had a hard time finding good information from doctors about this. Doctor, I, For me, I found that the doctors were like, the last thing they wanted to tell me to do was, you know, stop exercising and eat more. Right. Um, <laughs> which was exactly what I needed. And it worked. And I, and I got pregnant without any, you know, any kind of like medical assistance or anything just by sitting on my butt and eating a lot of ice cream. Um, and so this isn't what's going on for everybody, but it took me a long time to know that that was a thing. And so if any of your listeners think they might fit into that, um, I just wanted to mention that. Oh, thank you for sharing your story. I think that that is, I mean, A, I think that that's how we get rid of shame is by telling our stories, which is why I do this podcast to help encourage women to do that because most of us live in the shame cave when we're trying to conceive or have a miscarriage. And yeah, the, the weight aspect, whether you're talking about having to gain weight or lose weight, it, it, it's like double shame, right? <laughs> yeah. 
and and there isn't a lot of information out there when you need to put on weight and it's a, that's a difficult thing to I think for somebody to understand who thinks they've tried their hardest to be healthy their whole life and then all of a sudden they're having trouble conceiving um so yeah that's like an extra uh nugget for your mind to chew on <laughs> the same time yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh well thank you so much for coming on and demystifying uh how this algorithm works and what the benefits are because i truly i I don't know that i've ever done another show about a product before but i do feel like this is one of those things that every woman should know about and have the option of using if she chooses because it can take away a lot of the the pressure and the anxiety Um, and you guys have an amazing community online um, it's one of the most active uh, fertility communities I've ever seen on Facebook, and they're super supportive women in there, and lots of good mentors uh, actually at answering questions, which is huge because there's so much information on the internet, but getting real usable <laughs> information is another story sometimes. And you guys go above and beyond to help that situation. So thank you. I'm so glad you think so. Yeah. Yeah. I do. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much. We'll have to have you back on when you guys have some, uh, changes to, you know, or if you launch that birth control <laughs> device, definitely let me know. Yeah. So we'll, we definitely will be launching it next year. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you to our listeners. We know your time and your attention is your most valuable asset you could give us. And we wish you all the luck in the world. Bye for now. Thanks. Bye. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, I invite you to become part of the Fertile Minds Collective. It's my monthly coaching program where we take all of this material and we fine-tune it to your unique fertility journey. Go to ladypotions.com and click on the banner at the top of the page to sign up. We'll see you on the inside.